Episode 21 of ICO 41, Weekly In-Depth Analysis of Initial Coin Offerings. My name is Owen Scott, and I'm your podcast host. This podcast focuses deeply on a single ICO each week and presumes some knowledge of the basics of blockchain technology. What's a little different about this podcast is that we read the white papers, we investigate the background of the team, and if we can, we spend time communicating directly with the team in question, and then we report to you in detail. As always, this podcast is not intended as investment advice, nor as information to lead to any particular action whatsoever. Our aim is to inform and not to suggest. So this week I want to start by first saying a big thank you to listeners who have reached out through Discord, Telegram, email, with all of this great feedback and good wishes, mainly about the Masternode episode, which was episode 19 a couple of weeks ago. And at the same time, I think I also want to apologize to anyone who might have gotten caught up in my enthusiasm, perhaps, and actually purchased Masternode seats just before this major market correction that we're having actually hit us. And of course, that also leads me to a great opportunity to yet again remind everyone that what we are doing here is not investment advice. I know you all know that. And no one has ever said otherwise, but I just want you to remember to tread through this crypto space thoughtfully and carefully. I saw a comment the other day on, I think it was Discord, it might have been Telegram, that really stayed with me. This person said, I treat every move that I make in crypto like I'm handling a live grenade. (laughs) I like that. I feel the same way. I mean... The slightest little thing, a copy and paste error can turn into a minor disaster. So yeah, I I get that sentiment, no question. The next thing I want to do this week is uh, I feel compelled to discuss what some people are calling the end of days. And of course, you know I'm probably talking about this deep slide in the price of Bitcoin and just about every other coin with it right now. So look, here's my story and my take on this. It actually reminds me of the several years that I spent making a sort of valiant effort to trade e-mini futures. Now, in case you don't know, e-mini futures are derivative instruments, uh, which, as I see now, and trading cryptocurrencies a little bit, uh, really have incredible volume and unbelievably precise and rapid market action on like a minute-by-minute, second-by-second basis. Now, e-mini trading for me, I was just never good enough to be consistently successful with it. And in fact, I believe that very few people actually are. Uh, It's sort of like golf or tennis, I think, where it's definitely possible to get around the course, uh, but you can just pretty much forget about joining the pro circuit. But I'll tell you one thing. I sure learned a lot about markets My favorite indicator when I was trading uh, was a set of the so-called better indicators by Barry Taylor, 
who's possibly the most sincere and unassuming professional trader that there is out there, and incredibly generous in the way that he shares his knowledge pretty much for free. One of the things that his indicator did was literally paint the bars on the chart, yellow for amateur action and blue for professional action. It was actually fascinating to watch, even if I didn't really have the stomach or the discipline or even the good sense to act like the professionals did. It was still incredibly educational to watch it. And as I look at this Bitcoin market right now, it's so indicative of the way that the amateurs and the pros used to operate, or at least when I was watching. I'm sure they still do now. The one striking thing about professional traders is that they never try to call the bottom of a market or a cycle or the top. Professionals start buying on the way down. And sometimes, surprisingly high up in the cycle. But as the market falls, they consistently buy as it drops. More or less if they're good at the lower end of it, but still not at the bottom. They buy on the way down. They don't sell and they don't panic. They carefully and consistently accumulate. And I guess they're using a sort of form of dollar cost averaging when you think about it. You don't see these people sell anything until it's about half or three quarters of the way back up again. And they do the same thing when they're actually selling. They don't sell all at once. They start selling on the way up. The main point is that they never panic. They rarely dump. And they don't try to make these huge wins. They just carefully, quietly play the odds. Now with Bitcoin, from what I've learned recently and listening to those people who have been in this market for quite some time, the cycle is such that it's relatively seasonal. Each year, there is a sort of drop right around January and February. This year, in my personal opinion, I believe it's exacerbated. Uh, I just I think that a lot of people entered this market that knew very little about it over the last 12 months. And they just more or less expected it to go up and up forever. What they were doing was that they were buying on the way up, buying on the way up, and probably a lot of them toward the last 25%. Not selling on the way up like the pros do, buying on the way up. Precisely the opposite of what they should be doing. And now, here they are, on the way down, they're selling, they're panicking, they're heading for the doors, selling desperately, I might imagine. It's rather predictable in a way. So you might ask then, you might all ask, where's this bottom then? Nobody knows. No one can possibly know. But it certainly is interesting to watch. And if there's one thing that I personally try to keep in mind as I watch, and in some cases as I personally act, is to strive to not act like an amateur. Do everything you can to act like a professional. And I would even submit that it's actually a little bit easier to do that because when you're day trading minute by minute, it's much more difficult. When you've only got maybe three seconds to make a decision or five minutes, it's a lot harder than it is when you have a few days.
All right, so the next thing I want to comment on is Masternodes. I, I want to go back to Masternodes because not only was that episode very, very popular, but I really think it bears some follow-up. Uh, there were a number of things that I would have liked to cover if I had more time. So the first thing is I want to reiterate some really important points when we talk about masternodes and masternode participation. First of all, it's evolving. It's changing. It is by no means governed by any set of behavior, much less any kind of governing force. And so you start to see new things happen, like more and more what might be described as exploitative behavior, perhaps, like auctioning off masternodes and things like that. That wasn't really the common practice a couple of few months ago. Secondly, in some ways, it's difficult to analyze a project because in this space, there's really not a lot of information. We don't have marketing departments. We don't have teams listed on LinkedIn. We don't have white papers or business cases. So there's not a lot of business use case analysis that can go into these things. Thirdly, the life cycle of masternode projects are usually a lot shorter than a marketed pre-mined ICO. In those kinds of ICOs, or those kinds of actual initial coin offerings that are heavily hyped or marketed, there's a roadmap, and that roadmap is almost always a year, at least. This is especially true with this new SAFT model, the future token model where the token itself takes months to even issue. Have a look at Filecoin. It's now several months past the end of the token sale. And on CoinMarketCap, there's no Filecoin blockchain per se that you would buy. Instead, it's actually a futures instrument. You're purchasing a futures instrument on CoinMarketCap for a coin that has yet to be issued. Now, by contrast, in the masternode world, we see very short time frames for a lot of these masternode projects with severe price fluctuations. So do your research with respect to the number of days that a given project is old. And unfortunately, masternodes online, which is probably the most popular, doesn't show that piece of data. It would be very helpful if they actually had a column that said when the first masternode was released or when the coin was begun to be mined. That would be very, very helpful. We don't see that. So you might have to do your own research on that. Fourth, please pay careful attention to the fact that there are several what have to be described as uh, mechanical criteria to consider when you start looking at masternodes. You've got the ROI. You've got the length that the coin has been mined, as I was just mentioning. You've got the number of masternodes there are, and there were, and there appears to be in the near future. You have what exchanges that the coin is listed on. You've got Telegram and Discord to get the vibe of the project. You've got any potential technical issues that could come out. And I just wish that I could come up with a formula to help understand some of these characteristics and how they interact with each other. But at least right now, I don't have any special insight. You'd think, for instance, that 
as the number of masternodes increased, the ROI would have to drop. And yeah, sure, that's by and large the case, but not all coins behave identically in this manner. And the price is not always reflective of exchange availability. And finally, there's no telling the impact that certain technical issues can actually have. Problems, for instance, with the masternodes and the architecture of the coin, they're really important and every coin is different. I, I think it was Tune uh, that introduced this concept of a variable seat count requirement for masternodes. It caused all kinds of issues that had to be resolved. All of this, all of these four things, they all lead to this very important point. And this is the one thing that I really want to communicate with this episode, at least in this part of this episode. And that's that your approach to masternode participation really needs to have a strategy. Your own personal strategy. There is no strategy. It's your strategy. Especially if you're going to take this seriously. Everyone's strategy has got to be different. If you're doing shared masternodes, you need to have a decisive strategy as to what to do with those coins that you earn, as well as what to do with the coins that are held, whether or not you want to hold those new coins or reinvest them, and by what criteria do you make that decision? Do you cash them out? When? Now, a lot of this is going to be colored by why you are participating in the first place. So it's impossible, obviously, for me to give specific guidance. But all I can say is that do whatever you can to organize all of these inputs, organize all of these different types of information quantitatively, if you can, and come up with a disciplined strategy and try not to deviate too far from it Naturally, it's going to evolve over time and you'll learn, but just kind of doing it without any sort of strategy or paying attention to any of the different factors that are affecting all aspects of this is, well, probably going to result in a little bit less beneficial experience. Anyway, that's my, uh, that's my advice when it comes to entering this particular segment of this very interesting uh, market. All right, I'm going to end uh, my little masternode wrap-up this week with a, with a note uh, that in this market that we're experiencing, uh, I just want to give you my personal, just me, just what I did. I uh, actually took this opportunity to, uh, to purchase a couple of masternode seats that I otherwise would not have been able to purchase. Uh, as to whether or not this would be a bad decision or a good decision, that remains to be seen. Who knows? Uh, but that's just kind of what I did, and I obviously meaning no influence whatsoever, but just wanted to report where my head was at. All right, so the next thing that we have time to cover today, fortunately, is a rather fascinating project, and I'm very happy to have stumbled upon it. Uh, The name is... Ravencoin. Now, all I can say about this is that if you want to get a sense of just how interesting and I'll say how much fun cryptocurrency can be, you definitely need to visit the Bitcoin Talk announcement page or thread of Ravencoin and read that thread. 
I'll, I'll be summarizing it as I sort of tell the story of Ravencoin here, but I do encourage you to check it out because it's going to provide you with plenty of entertainment and lead you potentially in all sorts of interesting places. Okay, so here's the Ravencoin story. Well, first of all, I just have to ask, what coin that is essentially named for a Game of Thrones character could not be cool, right? But this story actually starts back in October of 2017. And there's a well-known figure in the cryptocurrency space named Bruce Fenton. He began to announce on Twitter and also in some talks that he had given at MIT, Bentley College, the Texas Bitcoin Conference, about a coin, about a new coin that was coming out, Ravencoin. Now, Mr. Fenton has about 30,000 Twitter followers And he announced the coin as well on Twitter to those followers around the end of October. He also shared it with something like 9,000 LinkedIn followers that he has. He wrote some articles on Medium. The code of this project was also released at the end of October on GitHub. And there were a few more tweets and a few more notifications And then on January 3rd, 2018, which happens to be the nine-year anniversary of the release of Bitcoin, uh, the Genesis block for Ravencoin was created. In fact, it came with a message, just like Bitcoin did, from the London Times, just like Bitcoin did exactly nine years ago. In this particular case, uh, it was the headline that had occurred on January 3rd on the London Times. It was Bitcoin is the name of the game for a new generation of firms. That was injected in the Genesis block. So, I mean, you start to see the sense of fun. But now here's where it gets a little bit interesting. The one place that Bruce and his team did not post was BitcoinTalk.org. Instead, there was a group of miners, maybe about 40 or 50 of them. And one of them, who was just paying attention uh, to the Twitter feed, probably, just turned around to his group and said, hey, look at this thing. Guys, should we give it a shot? And they did. But it wasn't just them, starting on January 3rd and 4th and 5th, because, after all, Mr. Fenton had announced this to tens of thousands of people through various channels, just not Bitcoin talk. So within a week, there was about a 1,000 miners mining from all over the place. A couple of them were large firms. What was interesting about this particular uh, mining experience was the algorithm. It was a new algorithm. And we've talked about ASIC resistance algorithms before. We've talked about how certain algorithms can uh, make a coin more fair in a way. So what happened here is that they've made up an algorithm. Uh, They called it X16R. Now, I need to take a step or two back and explain a little bit about the sort of X16 or just, just the concept of the mining algorithms. And this particular one was specifically designed to be ASIC resistant. I think everyone who listens to this podcast knows by now that that ASIC actually stands for Application-Specific Integrated Circuit, which is really another way of saying that it's a chip that's designed for a very specific job. And there are a handful of these types of chips, these types of machines that are manufactured for very specific mining algorithms. In fact, ASIC designers 
design machines and chips around a mining algorithm in many cases. And a mining algorithm can deliberately be engineered to be ASIC resistant. And of course, this is a common goal, as you know, of many coins, in order to try to make every effort they can to distribute the mining rewards as widely as possible so that massive ASIC miners don't take all the coins. Now, you might wonder, how do they actually fend off these kind of scary, massive parallel processing ASICs? They do it with a memory-intensive algorithm. Because remember, an ASIC is a CPU. It's not RAM. At least, anyway, that's what the earlier ASIC-resistant algorithms did, like Ethereum's Equihash and Script. And then, not that long after, came Dash with their X11 algorithm. They took it a little bit further. The X11 chained together different algorithms. And as the Ravencoin white paper mentions, this lasted a little while until, that is, the ASIC companies figured out a way to build an X11 ASIC miner. Designing around that sequence of algorithms probably took them a little while, but they figured it out. And of course, the result is that the ASIC uh, companies and the ASIC chips have had some profound effects on the Dash network. Now, in response, of course, there were later versions of X11, and they were known as X13 and X15 and, and now X17. And they just chained together more and more algorithms, just making it harder and harder for ASICs to compete. And there's a timeline for designing an ASIC chip and getting it out the door and so forth. So, you know, it's, it's just sort of a race. It's an arms race in a way. So you might ask, Hang on a second. Memory intensive? Well, so if ASICs don't have a lot of memory, what does? Well, the answer, of course, is video cards. And the more memory, the better the video card is for mining. But with Ravencoin, they came out with an interesting innovation, a little bit of a twist. So they came out with the X16R. And what does that mean? Well, it means, first of all, that there's 16 different algorithms chained together. But the twist is that the R stands for random. So not only are there 16 different algorithms similar to like, you know, X11, X13, X17, and so forth. But here, the last eight bytes of the last hashed block are examined. And those eight bytes comprise 16 characters. And each character is assigned to a specific algorithm. But if you think about it, that pretty much guarantees that the sequence of algorithms will be different for every block. Now that is an interesting twist. And that's designed, of course, to defeat the cleverest ASIC designer there could be. And it really is going to be interesting to see how this sort of uh, arms race plays out. Also, it's a, quite an interesting innovation for this coin. I, I definitely think that the X16R algorithm is, is innovative. All right, let's, that's enough about the technical stuff. Now, let's, let's cover some sort of interesting aspects uh, about the announcement on Bitcoin Talk and so forth. So, 
the group of miners that I told you about were they were mining this coin and uh, it was going pretty well and of course there were thousands of people also mining it and uh, this particular group reached out to Bruce Fenton uh, and or the developers that began this project and just casually asked why there wasn't a Bitcoin talk announcement. And the reply that they got back was pretty much that they were focused on the technical aspects of releasing the coin. And they had already reached out to tens of thousands of people. But the miners, being a member of the Bitcoin talk community, said, look, do you mind if we create an announcement? And they said, sure. So the miners put out an announcement on January 14th. And the announcement was sort of typical of what you'd see, POW, no pre-mine, fair launch. Well, the reaction from the Bitcoin talk community was as if the project had somehow violated some kind of sacred trust or, or Bitcoin talk release protocol or something. People started essentially screaming at the top of their lungs about pre-mine, insta-mine, ninja launch. This was coming from members of all levels as well. And it took a lot of patient explaining by everyone involved in the project and the miners themselves. It finally did, after a while, seem to sink in, at least for most people. Essentially this, a pre-mine is not defined as a project that is launched before announcing it on Bitcoin Talk. A pre-mine, or an insta-mine, is a project that is launched where a few people, usually the developers, mine the coin before it's announced anywhere and before anybody else gets to mine it. In this case, the announcement, the impending announcement, started three months before the coin was actually released. When it was released, it was released through and announced through Twitter, 30,000 followers, and within a week, a 1,000 people were mining it. So, no pre-mine, but the reaction of the community would suggest otherwise. Now, one thing that the community rallied around was for a GPU miner to be released uh, based on CC Miner, and that was actually released not that long ago. According to just about everyone, this has resulted in more or less the death uh, of inexpensive CPU mining for this particular coin, uh, now favored by GPU mining, because for this type of coin, obviously, uh, GPU is far superior. Now, this is not a masternode coin, uh, but it's very, very mineable. And I wanted to test my just my idea of trying to get in early on some of these coins. And I pointed my uh, little 1070 Ti mining rig uh, at the Raven Pool, and I'm I'm now getting something like 300 coins an hour, just like clockwork. So it's been fun. You know, again, part of the fun. The other thing that I want to mention is that if you take the time to read the full thread of the announcement page, it's about 44 pages long now, you're going to see more evidence of this idea of fun that I talked about. It was just a really interesting story where one of the miners that released the announcement, as well as a, a very senior member on Bitcoin Talk that just sort of seemed to drop in, uh, completely and totally recreated the entire infamous pizza transaction episode, all the way to a posted image of the actual delivered pizza. And I mean, I just think that's just charming. I don't really have another word for it, actually. 
just really kind of awesome. The other thing that I want to talk about uh, a little bit and which sort of led me to this uh, through Ravencoin and through Twitter uh, was just I want to respond to the readers who over the last few weeks have have asked me and I haven't had a chance to publicly respond uh, to the question of where I get my information or, or where is the best place and how to just sort of keep up on what's going on. And I think what I'll do is I'll, I'll, I'll talk about uh, sort of uh, at least some of the channels or forums that I spend most of my time in. I'll start with Bitcoin Talk. Uh, I honestly think it's a national, an international treasure. I, I, I really think that it, it's just an unbelievable wealth of information. And I can't think of a more diverse community. I mean, it has just about everybody in that community and so many fascinating voices. Just really, really a remarkable, remarkable um, resource. It's just hard to even quantify it. It's, It's so enormous. Reddit, great as well. I have to confess that I'm not a huge fan of Reddit, but it's mainly because I'm a little bit frustrated sometimes in the apparent catch-22 of uh, the ability to post in certain subreddits, especially altcoin subreddits. But hey, that's that's just me not having enough time to, to figure out how to get my levels up to where I, they need to be or whatever. But uh, I just don't see it as... It's just, if you, if you look at this spectrum of sort of sanity or, or kindness, or I don't know, know what even, you know, true community values... And you got over here on the left, Bitcoin Talk, and you got Reddit kind of in the middle, and you got 4chan on the right, you know, which to me is just, you know, completely insane. So sort of the degree of civility in a way. So I, I just feel like Bitcoin Talk is 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 just a little bit more uh, civil and um, more interesting, more diverse. Anyway, my opinion. And you've got Discord. You've got Telegram. Now, Discord and Telegram... Uh, are invaluable, absolutely invaluable uh, if you're going to research a given project because any any project worth their salt or worth even looking at has to have one of those two channels. I suppose Slack, but Slack is really falling out of favor, but it works the same. I mean, I should have included Discord, Telegram, Slack. Uh, I, I feel like you have to you have to drop in those channels, and, and there's something else that might not be immediately apparent about those channels, and that's it's like a live version of Bitcoin Talk. You can learn so much so fast. You can ask questions, obviously, and get instant answers. But even if you just sit there and lurk, and drop into the sort of channels inside of a given server. So you drop into, for instance, the mining channel, and you're sitting there talking to miners that have been doing it for years. Same thing for who knows what other aspect. That's why Discord's better, by the way. They break up the conversation so much better in Discord. But what a wealth of information. There's these people that know exactly what they're doing, and they're just chatting, and you're just learning. You're just absorbing. Then there's YouTube. YouTube is, as you might imagine, enormous, but there 
you really have to filter YouTube. There is just an unbelievable amount of, um, I guess, I don't know, spam or I, I'm not even sure, but misinformation, I think a lot of, have to be careful of. Um, Medium and Steemit, if you like to read, are two very good uh, sources of information. Medium is especially good. And then Hacker Noon. So Hacker Noon is another one. Now, I know for every six or so channels that I've just talked about, there's probably 60. I'm just telling you the ones that I personally find the most valuable. There is a few sort of news outlets, I guess you could say. Uh, but, you know, again, take some of those. I mean, as as most media, paid media outlets, you really have to sort of take it a, with a grain of salt. Um, thinking of CCN, um, there's just a few. Cointelegraph, not bad, not bad. I mean, they do a, they do pretty good uh, service for, for news. But very often, it's a good idea after you read an article to scroll down and look at some of the comments if, if they have. First of all, do they allow comments? That's, that's a very good question. If they allow comments, then okay, that's good, right? That, at least they have a little bit more, uh, you know, I guess you could say reputation if they allow a democratic uh, sort of voice. And then scroll down and look at some of those comments because very often you've got people weighing in that are able to provide some depth and some perspective to the article in question. And then finally, I honestly think that there's a great deal to be said for following people and paying attention to what they're saying. I'm talking about individuals. I'll give you a couple examples. So in Ravencoin last night, clicked on the Telegram channel, dropped in, and was reading, you know, there's a lot to catch up on when you've got something that's been around for a couple of weeks, uh, a lot of comments. But then a little bit closer to, uh, to, to the present, uh, who do I see but Richard Hart. Now, I don't know if any of you know who Richard Hart is, uh, but he's definitely one of the more colorful characters uh, that just make up this crypto community that we have and that we're all part of. He's actually a fascinating guy in the sense that he's got a YouTube channel and he has a certain style. And, you know, I don't, I don't know, everybody's got their own style and everybody's got their way of communicating and the way that they present themselves. And he is just very unique. I mean, to the way he dresses, to the way to the way he measures his speech, um, to the way that he can go from, you know, very thoughtful contemplation to ranting and, and just really just very interesting. Uh, and, you know, this, this sort of, uh, he walks a fine line between outright cynicism and pragmatic uh, discussion uh, and, and wistfulness. I mean, I mean, the whole range, you know, and, and he's just one. I mean, he's just one fascinating character who's been around a long time. Another one, Roger Ver. And, uh, you know, just fascinating individual. Whether you agree with the person or not, they're not dumb people. They have a lot to say, and there's nothing wrong with listening intently to what they're saying. There is just certain people like that. And then you put them together, it's even better. I mean, there was there's a fantastic, I think it's an hour and a half at least, uh, conversation between Richard Hart and Roger Ver. Informative at the very least. Entertaining, absolutely. In fact, last night, 
last night. Uh, Ivan, I, the, Ivan, there's a developer uh, probably from Russia or somewhere in Eastern Europe. Excellent, excellent uh, YouTuber. Uh, very sincere, uh, just very personable. Um, you know, really has a lot of energy and uh, has a channel. He interviewed Richard Hart for two and a half hours or something. Fascinating, fascinating. So there, that's that's another really great. Now I know that there's not enough time, obviously, to do all this, but you can feed yourself, uh, you can nourish yourself with an unbelievable amount of information. You just need to sort of start really taking the time each day to decide what you want to educate yourself about and just go deep. Don't just skate along the surface, you know. Don't be, in my opinion, don't be content with just reading the headlines or just reading a, you know, a quick little article that's maybe two or three paragraphs that is obviously written by some very specific point of view. It's definitely good to uh, scroll down, read the comments, find out who's making those comments. Go look them up. Go to LinkedIn, go to who knows, wherever they came from. You might find a, a clue that might show you who they are. And uh, even Facebook. I, I didn't mention Facebook. I should mention Facebook. Facebook is a, a great resource because there are real people there. You know? <laughs> These are people that have families and that, that, you know, that, that have lives and, and in the real world. And they're not just you know, hiding behind a, an anonymous uh, 4chan uh, handle or whatever. Um, LinkedIn, again, all of these channels, they all have something to offer. And find the people who are really writing really interesting articles. Find the people who are running these, these, uh, these, pro these projects. In fact, you're going to find very interesting cross-current and uh, involvements from people that you'll get to know. I, I was amazed. I think that I was reading, I think it was in Discord, uh, between the developers of Ravencoin. And I'm 99.9% .9 sure that I saw Stu from Lambden pop in there and sort of helping them out or doing something. <laughs> you know, it could have been a coincidence, but I don't think so because I, I recognize the picture. So honestly, um, it's a fascinating community. And there are so many ways to join it. And there's so many sources of information. I just uh, encourage you to find every single one that speaks to you and even find the ones that bother you. Look for the ones that sort of bug you a little bit. Find out why they're bugging you and challenging you and challenging your perceptions. And don't take anything anybody says for gospel, because there isn't any gospel. There's just a lot of very interesting and strong opinions, and everyone's sort of trying to figure this out as they go along. Fortunately, there's a lot of smart people doing that. All right, that's it for this week, and I'll talk to you next week.